the powerful would lose all power and the presently powerless would inherit it. And if you were powerless, you said, Lord, that day, let it come. The oppressor and the oppressed switch places on the day of his coming. Can you hear the cheers? And it's in the broader context of this idea of the reversal at the day of the Lord that Jesus adds another category of reversal, a category much nearer the bone and a category perhaps causing people to just think before they cheer a little bit more. On that day, says Jesus, the self-righteous will become like sinners and the sinners will be treated like the self-righteous. Shock, horror, but actually, you know, quite a common theme in Scripture. You see, the bringing low of the puffed-up, self-righteous person and God's exaltation of sinners, the fact that the proud are humbled and the humble are exalted, is a repeated theme all the way through Scripture, not just the parables of Jesus. For example, it's found in the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis. Let's build a tower to heaven, say the people. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's be like God. And God shatters the tower and scatters the people and over a period of long time then begins to raise up a chosen people, starting with a shepherd boy called David. For example, it's found in the story of Jonah, who's confidence about his own righteousness, I am a Hebrew, and the punishment of God upon the inhabitants of that terrible sinful city Nineveh are turned completely upside down. And Jonah ends up livid and embarrassed at God's forgiveness of sinners and his self-justification is his own destruction until he became, becomes aware of his senses. So here in this parable, Jesus is taking up a common accepted theme about the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day to come. When God turns everything upside down and the common belief that God will bring the proud down to earth and he will lift high the penitent soul. And then applies them to this new right-in-your-face situation using the starkest examples he could think of, of a pious man and a sinner in the temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector. They're almost like caricatures. One's holy, the other's not. I mean, tax collectors were despised sinners. Everybody knew that. He serves a foreign government. He colludes with an occupying hated force. He's politically a traitor. He's religiously unclean. He's a reprehensible character. He's tolerated by some who have to work the system, other sinners, by the way, but resented by every right-thinking folk. He's a walking offense to all good-living people in society today. If anyone couldn't count on being justified when they went to the temple, it's tax collectors and sinners. 
The Pharisee, on the other hand, is known for all Jesus has dim things to say about them. The Pharisees in society were known as the ones who fulfilled and sometimes even went beyond the strict expectations of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. And therefore, we mustn't do what people are often inclined to do with this parable. We mustn't let ourselves off the hook too easily. Well, what is it we often do? We mustn't move too quickly to portray the Pharisee as some kind of villain, dressed up in holy garb, but actually deeply black-hearted and evil. His prayer, I thank thee, Lord, that I am not like other men, easily sounds arrogant. But it's in fact a simple modification of the traditional prayer said by rabbis for hundreds of years, marking out not so much their superiority to other people, but simply a thanksgiving to God that by God's grace they had been set apart. When he says, I give a tenth of all I do and I pray and I... I," He does. He's not saying it and then doing something different. He is the faithful, reliable kind of person found in every Christian church up and down this land. He gives generously. He'll give generously to our anniversary appeal. He can be relied upon to turn up Sunday by Sunday. In terms of his faith, he's like many of us. Nor must we portray too easily the tax collector as actually, well, a really good sort. He's just misunderstood, that's all. But actually, he's warm-hearted and generous. He's a sort of biblical Del Boy figure, lovable and affable. He's just trying to make a living, the poor soul. You see, if Jesus pictured the Pharisee as the villain and the publican as some kind of secret benign hero, then in the parable they both get exactly what they deserve. The sting in the tail of this parable is that both of them get what they get in spite of, not because of, who they are. That's the offense of the parable. The point of the parable is the justification of God is offered to people who just don't deserve it. So what is it here in this parable that causes Jesus to be so very critical of the Pharisee? It is quite simply his self righteousness. He's puffed up with pride. His body language before God and before others in the temple is speaking louder than his words. That's the key issue here. But not only his self-righteousness, his self-righteousness is directed at other people. Notice that the three things the Pharisee reports he is doing, and probably was doing, praying, fasting, and giving, are the very three things that Jesus speaks about in some detail in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And what does Jesus say? Whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand in the synagogues so they can be seen by others. Are you getting this? Don't heap up empty phrases thinking that lots of words matter. Don't be like them. And whenever you fast, don't look pathetic and dismal like the hypocrites do. They darken their eyes and declare loudly as they rub their tummies, I'm fasting, you know. Can you see? And whenever you give, says Jesus, don't expect a trumpet fanfare like the hypocrites do so that everybody can be impressed. No, do it quietly. You see, the sin is not in the spiritual practices themselves. They're good and right and proper. What Jesus is saying is that it's quite clear that even good and right and proper things, like praying and blessing and giving, can be ruined by the attitude in which they're undertaken. You can pray and not really pray. You can give and not really give. Even deeply spiritual people, even mature Christians, even, God forbid, Methodists, can be self-righteous, smug, satisfied people. Now, self-righteousness is one thing, but even worse, as suggests Jesus in this parable, is when it manifests itself in criticizing and judging others. That's what's happening here in the prayer of the Pharisee. Remember, his prayer would be said out loud. He would say it so that people in the vicinity could hear it. That's what you did. If you go to Israel now, you'll still see that in public, many prayers are said out loud. This is, in fact, though, a how not to pray lesson. Let's look at it just for a moment. The Pharisee takes pleasure in what he has not done. I'm not a thief or an adulterer. I'm not even like him, that, <coughs> that tax collector. He calls attention to himself. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I earn. He doesn't actually pray for forgiveness at all. He probably doesn't feel he needs to. He's pretty certain that he's pleasing God. He mentions others only in comparison to himself. He's ungracious, he's judgmental, he places reliance on his own acts of piety, not on God's mercy and forgiveness. What a pathetic prayer. By contrast, whatever else is happening, the prayer of the tax collector has some marks of true humility about it. He doesn't take pleasure in what he's done. He doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He's pretty clear he's not pleasing God. He prays earnestly for forgiveness. Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He never mentions the other person, the Pharisee. It's between him and God. He places no reliance on himself whatsoever and finishes up simply begging God for mercy and forgiveness. I wonder if the Pharisee 
actually recognized his self-righteousness. Because, you see, one of the really, really annoying things about self-righteousness is that most of us, when we've got it, don't recognize we've got it. But some signs of self-righteousness are these. When we're quick to rush to the judgment of other people. When we have a tendency to minimize or rationalize or explain away our own shortcomings, but maximize them in someone else. Jesus said something, didn't he, about specks and logs. When we feel that we've spiritually arrived. So this morning, we should be asking, what spirit pervades our praying and our fasting and our giving? Are we self-righteous? And even worse, does our self-righteousness spill over in criticism and ridicule of other people? Because if so, even to a small degree, Jesus, our Lord, doesn't seem to think much of that at all. So what's our body language before God this morning? One of my favorite stories, you'll hear it from time to time. I don't mind telling stories more than once. One of my favorite stories is a story of the Emperor Constantine, whether it's, it's clearly not true, but it's a good preacher's story. When the Emperor Constantine, the first so-called Christian emperor, died and he went to the gates of heaven. The gates were closed and he knocks with a big knock. And a voice comes from behind the gate of heaven. Who is there? And he says, Constantine, Lord of the Holy Roman Empire, son of Flavius Valerius Contenstis, Leader of the armies of Rome, conqueror of the Goths and the Franks, founder of Constantinople. And there's a long pause, and a voice comes from behind the gate of heaven. We do not know him. Not to be deterred, he bangs even louder on the gates of heaven and recites this hugely impressive human CV. And again, there's a pause. And the voice says, we do not know him. But you don't get to be a Roman emperor if you're an idiot. And it suddenly dawns on him what might be going wrong. And he knocks gently a third time on the gates of heaven. And when the voice says, who is there? He says, Constantine, a sinner. Saved by grace, and the doors open. So, how do we view ourselves, and how do we view others before God? As a congregation in this place, how do we view ourselves, and how do we view others before God? And what is our body language saying before God and before others? And if it's not good body language, how are we going to change our posture starting here, now, this morning? Amen.